Father, that is what we're looking to you for, is to be a shield for us, our strength, everything. We, we know that in our flesh, we cannot do anything to please you. We go wayward. God, I would pray that um, when you look into each one of these lives that are sitting here, that, that you're pleased with what you see. It's an amazing thought to think that the one who created everything would see us as individuals. We might think that you're too busy taking care of, you know, bigger things. But of course, we've been purchased with your son's blood, and so I guess it's pretty important how we act because we know that we're no longer just representing ourselves, the world, but we're representing you. So we pray that you'd find us faithful. I pray that you'd help us this morning as we look into that subject a little bit more. As Pastor Justin brings your word, I would pray that you'd help us to listen intently to what you have for us. Pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, isn't it awesome that you all made it here safe? Yeah? That's okay. You'll wake up slowly. You'll thaw. We'll thaw. Don't worry. Uh, just a couple of announcements before we get started uh, this morning. Um, we're going to be making a change, and we're testing it out next week um, with our Lord's Supper. We will be uh, participating in the Lord's Supper in all three services next week during the main services. So if you normally set aside time to come back that evening, there won't be a special Lord's Supper service. We're going to be having that in our main services, and uh, we're working out whether or not that might be possible to do from here on out. So we wanted you, first of all, to be ready next week for that, uh, for the Lord's Supper, but also if you were to miss the morning services and anticipate coming back just for that one, uh, there won't be anybody here, all right? So uh, come at the main service, we'll have Lord's Supper. Also, uh, just a, a reminder, we've had a few questions about uh, a security and having a security guard on site. Uh, I, I want to be uh, really clear with you that there is no Im immediate threat, and this is not our only step when it comes to security. This is part of an overall process, um, but what we found was if uh, we were to ask somebody, hey, where would you go if you thought there was a problem, they didn't really know, and we weren't doing much to help that, okay? So we're trying to give you an identified point. Who do you go to if there is a concern? Where do you go? Um, we are going to be making some changes to our building. Uh, in a desire to make it safer for our children. We're going to be making uh, some changes to our overall plan, and we'll keep you informed of all of those things. It's not a one-point or a one-size-fits-all. Uh, we're trying to make sure that we're addressing security concerns, and, and in particular, what do we do in any kind of emergency? Not just the uh, crazy ones that we hear in the news, but in general, making sure that we're thinking about safety as we have more people moving through this building. I don't know if you've noticed, but on a regular basis now, when you come on a Sunday morning between first and second services, there's not a lot of room for us just to kind of move. You bang into a lot of people on your way in and out of the place, and we want to make sure we do that in a safe way. Is that okay? All right. You're super talkative this morning. I want you to quiet down <laughs> as we turn to Luke chapter 22, all right? Luke chapter 22. We're wrapping up our Darkest Night series, and as you turn there, um, I, I was, uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in an IFCA church, a little denomination that was down in uh, southern Oregon. They had planted a bunch of these small churches 
in that area, and they participated uh, jointly in a camp, Fur Point Bible Camp, that we grew up going to in the summers. It was an awesome camp. It's the only camp that, uh, that I had heard of at that time uh, that in, encouraged you on your way to go to the uh, swimming pool that you needed to wear boots because there might be rattlesnakes. That was fun as a kid to uh, dress that way, you know, in your uh, <laughs> bathing suit and boots. It's a cool look still today. And I can remember one time, what they did was they gave you awards for keeping your cabin nice or for being appropriate uh, during the talk times or making sure that you were engaged with other people. And there were all these awards for the cabins. And, and they were trying to inspire people to stay faithful to this. And I can remember partway through one of the weeks on a Wednesday, you know, at the very end of the week, if you won, you got this giant banana split for your entire group, and you got to eat that as a cabin in front of all of the other cabins before they were dismissed. And so they were just doing a partial partway through the week. They didn't feel like they'd had enough people participating or getting excited about it. We were all Southern Oregon kids. Keeping stuff clean or caring about others wasn't high on our list. And so they were trying to inspire that, and they said, hey, this cabin is doing really well. And they called our cabin out, and they said, we're just going to give you partway through just a part of a banana split. And it looked like they had uh, laid out in front of us there uh, this Lumps of ice cream covered with, uh, you know, whipped cream and uh, sauces, all kinds of, you know, caramel, strawberry, chocolate, and uh, they were going to let us dig in. So we get over there all excited, a bunch of junior high boys, and we dig in with our spoons, and we take those first bites in front of everyone, but they had not filled it with ice cream. It was mashed potatoes. <laughs> that was a terrible plan. By the way, it kind of spiked their, uh, you know, enjoyment. Nobody really thought there was going to be a prize at the end of the week either. So it was ruinous for them, but it was terrible for me. I can remember that first big scoop. Dive in there, take a scoop out of that mashed potatoes, you pop it in your mouth, and you're like expecting the explosion of sweet and savory and delicious, and it's nasty. <laughs> Cold, mushy potatoes covered with caramel sauce. Yeah, still don't like caramel sauce. It is a terrible bait and switch. We have a moment as Christ is going up and we have uh, all of his men together going up to have the Passover and it looks like the night is going to be sweet. It looks like it's gonna be wonderful. They have entered the city to all of the praises of the people and the anticipation, the hosannas that are being shouted out for the king. But by the middle of the night, the tide has turned and not only has Christ announced that there would be a betrayer in their midst, but right now in the scene that we're about to read, the betrayer makes himself evident. And somebody who was close, who was supposed to be kind, who was supposed to uh, fill that scene with favor, instead arrives with a band of people to take the Savior away. Somebody that had walked with them for all of those years was the betrayer. And what should have been sweet was destructive. We're going to read this passage together. Let's stand as we read verses 47 through 53. Remember, uh, Jesus has just warned the men that they should have been praying. They weren't praying. They were asleep uh, as Christ is groaning over what is about to happen. And he warns them, that why, asking them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And the scripture says, while he was still speaking... Behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, 
Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, did you, not, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and power of darkness are yours. Do you believe that actually happened? Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we look at this passage, I pray that you would open our eyes uh, and our hearts, that we would be able to see what actually happened, that we would be able to understand what was going on, even partially in the minds of those that were there in that scene. But also, Father, we pray that you would help us to see how we are like them. What are the chances that we could be a betrayer? What are the chances that we could act rashly? And Father, we need to ask ourselves if we are impressed anymore with the amazing way that Christ addresses every single situation with grace. Father, help us to be impressed with him, concerned about ourselves, and repentant that we would present ourselves to you with a heart of wisdom. Give us that this morning in Christ's name. Amen. In your notes, Vance Havner writes, uh, Satan's not fighting churches, he's joining them. He does more harm by sowing tares than by pulling wheat. He accomplishes more by imitation than by outright opposition. This describes Satan. As the garden scene comes to a close, Judas, the great pretender, arrives. With men on his heels and hell on his breath, he gives Jesus a kiss. And he helps the Savior take his first steps from Gethsemane to the cross. His action would expose three different motives. We're going to be looking at these motives. What was motivating G Judas? That's the primary one for us this morning. Uh, his desire to betray, but also what's motivating Peter? And I want us to take note of Jesus. Remember in the scene, he's just got done with uh, that moment of prayer that was so gut-wrenching and so intense. I don't know if you were listening last week to what Pete did there with that. And, and by the way, didn't he do an amazing job with that passage? Uh, so thoughtfully done. But as you take a look at that moment with the cup and going back to the suffering servant songs and looking in Isaiah at that moment where once again we see a cup that is being drank uh, until somebody removes it away and then it is only for enemies. It is drank completely. All of us, if we have anything to look forward to in eternity, have it to look forward to because Christ drank the cup completely. There is no threat of punishment. There is nothing left for us to accomplish. It has all been finished by Christ. Amen? Right. He finished it on the cross. There is nothing left for you and I but faith. We just respond by faith and everything else, all of that punishment was drank completely by Christ. At the end of that, he highlights the need to pray and to pray proactively. These men right now were receiving a word. It's written down in all of the Gospels. They are reminded that they did not pray and what unfolds next is what happens when people do not pray. 
how they respond, the way that they flee, uh, the fact that they are not at the cross supporting the Savior, but they're running in fear of their own lives. They write it to their own shame. They were not prayed up, and they dispersed and run off as a result. They had no heart, no strength, nothing to support them. Their ability would not be enough. So while Christ is warning them, it says, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? First thing I would have you see is that when a secret agenda was discovered, that was Judas, Satan filled a willing heart. Satan filled a willing heart. We've made this point before, but I hope that we can drive it home. We have a couple of pictures here of things that use that sticky sweetness to draw in someone to their death. A Venus flytrap. See that there with a fly that's in his last moments of life, all right? Using uh, syrupy sweetness, he draws in the flies. That Venus flytrap will actually uh, draw in creatures and then clamp shut around them, digesting them, destroying them, but drawing them in with something that they feel like they want. There's a fly that's famous on the uh, Rogue River. We have up in the inset there the picture of the hook that's on the bottom. But if you look at just the one uh, on the left-hand side there on the screen, look how lifelike that looks. If you were a fish, wouldn't you kind of want to taste that? It's one of my favorite flies when we're fishing on the top water or any of the, the, uh, the surface. It is fun to watch a fish get confused by that, come up and just attack it. Uh, they'll splash around on the surface. They will seek those out. But they seek it out, and you see underneath it there is a hook. It's all dressed to look like something tasty. Um, but that hook will drag them to the shore. I, I want you to see this little uh, thing we've named the squishy. You see that? That little light? What could that possibly be attached to? It looks like it's just a light pole on the street. But look at the thing that it's attached to. The anglerfish, this is a depiction of an actual set of bones right there. Uh, this is the artist's rendition. Uh, if you look up the anglerfish in the water, this is actually a pretty picture of one of those. That little light will draw in fish that think that they are following something that would be delightful, and it leads them right into the mouth of that monster. That's an ugly-looking fish, right? Thankfully, he dwells in the deep. Don't worry, when you're swimming, you're probably not going to feel him. He'd distaste you. All of these use something that you think that you want, that the creature thinks that it wants, that uh, kindness. It uses a falsehood to draw them to their death. This is Judas. This is how wicked this moment is. Here's somebody that is a friend. And, and before we just jump into how we're like Judas, I, I want you to think about the last time that Satan was this close. Because remember the scene, it says that Satan filled him. In all of the Gospels, this is what we see clearly. In John, it actually says, and Satan filled him, and he went out, and it was night. Now, we already knew that it was night, but what is he saying? It got blacker. It got darker. It got thicker. The smell of sulfur is in the air. Here is Satan that fills Judas and how shocking is it to us that Judas still acts in a consistent way. He has been so constantly ready for Satan to fill him that when he is filled with Satan, nobody notices a difference. Isn't that shocking? 
When was the last time as Judas draws near, but we know that he is filled with Satan, Satan is coming up right there to kiss the Savior on the face. When is the last time that he's this close to God? That's a question we ought to ask. It's informative. Was it at the desert? As he's tempting Jesus and he takes him up there and he says, come up here and see all of these nations in all the world. If you just bow down before me and let all of this go, I won't make you go to the cross. I'll give up. I just want you to worship me one time. Bow to me. And Jesus refuses. In fact, three different times, Christ, using only the word of God, the same word of God that we have here, he warns Satan from this path. He sends him off and sends him packing. Was it at the desert? No. Was it at Job? Was that the last time that he was this close? As all of the sons of the earth, the angels are walking around, it says that there is Satan, once again, like a roaring lion, looking for somebody to destroy, looking for somebody who's bringing honor to God, and he wants to cause affliction. Was that the last time he was this close? I don't know that he was even that close at that moment. Was it at the garden as he is deceiving the first couple? Adam and Eve, and here he is coming, and, and there in all of their innocence, talking to this creature? No, I think this wasn't the last time. I think that the time that we see him this close is all the way back when Satan fell. There's an interesting passage where we read about Satan before the fall and after in Ezekiel 28 and in Isaiah 14. By the way, Satan has filled other leaders and he's speaking to another leader, but he speaks past that leader to the one that has filled that evil leader. He's speaking past the king of Tyre. And he says, because your heart is lifted up in 28.2, and you have said, I am a God, I sit at the seat of, in your, in your notes it might say gods, but literally, I sit in the seat of Elohim. I sit in God's seat. I'm worthy of praise. Yet you're a man and not God, though you make your heart like the heart of God. Verse 12, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. There's a clue. He's not speaking to a man. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, lapis lazuli. He said, you are the most beautiful creature that's ever been in existence. Your beauty was unparalleled. Everyone that saw you would be in awe. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I placed you there. Literally the one who was in the throne room of God right there in my presence next to my face. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire, a picture of of heaven. All of the angelic beings that are cherubim or fiery ones Uh, that run to do his bidding, but are the ones that are closest to his presence. You are right there in the middle of it all. Verse 16, by the abundance of your trade, you are internally filled with violence and you sin. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. There's a moment where Satan, as he's participating in all the stuff that is going on earth, says, you know what, I could do this. In fact, I should be as high as God. I I should be worshipped instead of Jesus. And he puts himself there and he says, I chose you. How many parallels are running in Judas's life? He was chosen to be there. He was in the presence. He was there with those leaders. He was among the elite that were rubbing shoulders with Christ. 
And yet he becomes, over those three and a half years, affected and internally angry. He says, I want to destroy him because he's not doing it the way I would do it. I deserve a higher place than him. I think he comes up in the garden, and at that moment, Christ sees Judas. He uses his name, but he also sees that old nemesis that's coming back once again. Uh, In Scripture, the term to worship means to kiss towards. This one who used to be in the very throne room of God, worshiping and leading in worship in the presence of Christ, is coming once again to kiss his face. And there's this moment where he almost leans over. You can hear the the internal dialogue going on. Do you remember me? I've come to lead you to the cross. Judas, filled with wickedness, is playing out an age-old scene. Satan has filled him. What are the signs that we might have a Judas spirit? Every single one of us, when we hear this, think this is ridiculous. We could never be there. But if the scriptures are correct, and they are, from the time of the early New Testament church all the way through in Jude, the warning is that inside each church there are those who are satanic plants. Do you know that? We are not called to look around and identify them. They'll make themselves evident, all right? Don't start searching your neighbor and say, is it you? We're to ask the question, is it me? What are the signs that you might have a Judas spirit? These are all things that make themselves apparent in the text. You might have a Judas spirit if you allow unmet expectations to turn to bitterness. Judas, from the very beginning, gets selected to be a part of the 12. He can see that this guy works miracles. He can see that everybody listens to him. He can see that he can ride his coattails to prominence in any place throughout Galilee and then throughout the entire nation. Everywhere Jesus goes, people of prominence are listening and they're confounded. And everything that Judas wanted, all of the power and everything that he he desired in order to control was there at his fingertips. But when the expectations weren't met, he becomes bitter in his heart, and that bitterness turns to a seething anger. If you allow your unmet expectations to turn to bitterness and you do nothing about it, you're starting where Judas started. If you allow unmet expectations to turn to bitterness, but that's not it. You might have a Judas spirit if you seek the inner circle. That's that place of recognition, that place of prominence. You seek the inner circle, but you have yet to surrender your will. You want to be known, you want to be seen, you want to participate with those that are leaders, especially within the church, but your heart has not yielded to God. You've not said, Lord, whatever your will is, that's what I'll do. Your desire is for power, your desire is to tell them how to live, your desire is to instruct others, but your own heart will not be instructed. You might have a Judas spirit. Third, you might have a Judas spirit if you are dismissive of sacrifice and focused on money. Do you remember? As the woman comes in and she has that perfume that would have been over a year's wages and she cracks the vial on the ground and she puts it on Jesus' feet. And Judas is instantly outraged. The first time that we hear his voice in the Gospels, we know of his presence, but here he is, the first time he speaks up, he says, this is crazy. You have just wasted that money. 
Boy, you're always going to hear a Judas spirit when you begin a campaign to do something in the community, when you begin to do something that leads to the worship of Christ, when you participate in missions, you will hear the voice of Judas ring out and say, couldn't we spend this more wisely? Now there is always a need to call for wisdom. But Judas's heart had nothing to do with spending it in a better way to honor Christ. It had to do with the fact that he had designs on that money. This is how that money would bless me. Spend it on the things that will minister to me. In fact, he looked at that sacrifice and he blew it off. Why is she wasting that? She d- he didn't see anything particularly beautiful about throwing everything away for the sake of Christ. By the way, God likes that and honored it. He honored it. Christ said, she's the only one in the room who understands what's about to happen. She's the only one that understands I take care of her eternity. He was dismissive of her sacrifice. Fourth, you might have a Judas spirit if you are chronically unsettled in the presence of Christ or his followers, even if they are your friends. What do I mean by that? Remember that uh, Judas is told, whatever you do, do quickly, and he hops up and he leaves the room. But Judas had so chronically been up and about and not able to listen when Christ was teaching. He was so chronically up and about and not there for those deep spiritual teaching times. He was so chronically up and about and moving around for those application seminars that Christ was putting on as he was talking to the disciples. He was so chronically moving about that the disciples said, oh, it's just Judas being Judas. He's just up moving around. Yeah, we're teaching, we're talking, we're connecting, we're fellowshipping, but he can't really sit there. He's just an anxious guy, right? Are you chronically unsettled in the presence of the Word of God, in the presence of real fellowship, in the presence of those moments where Scripture goes from thoughts and axioms to application? Fifth, you might have a Judas spirit if you have disguised hatred with holiness or allowed aggravation to turn into accusation. Do you underneath it all just have a seething anger towards the way things are going? Do you need to have that voice represented? Do you find yourself accusing the saints rather than blessing them? Sixth, you might have a Judas spirit if you have formed unholy alliances or factions in order to avoid repentance. That means you will go out and find other people who think like you do and that will raise up their standards and join you in battle against other believers because you don't want to change your mind, even if you're convicted by Scripture, even if you can see that there is some other way that you're supposed to be. Judas goes out and he finds those people who will get his opinion shared. He, pays, he gets paid 30 pieces of silver to sell the Savior because he's had it. These people think like I do, and he's going to sell Christ out, hoping that he can purchase also a position with that. You formed unholy alliances. Have you found other people who will think like you do in your irritation rather than yield like God would have you? Finally, you might have a Judas spirit if you've never really believed that Christ alone is the answer. Inspect your heart. Have you put your whole case in God's hands? Have you put your faith in Christ? 
Now, this is a moment I would love for us to just say la, all right? Pause and think about this. We could jump off this point because I don't know about you, but it feels a little convicty in here, doesn't it? How intense can this be? We might have a Judas spirit. Machiavelli said, never attempt to win by force what can be won by deception. That's a satanic verse if we've ever heard one. Christ who is out front, Christ who is proclaiming truth, Christ who is filled with grace is sitting right there. He is received by this satanically energized man. He is pointed out by Judas. If we have a Judas spirit and you're under conviction, today is the day to let that go. Amen? Today is the day to turn around, to recant of that lifestyle, to recant of that thinking, to let go of it, and to do it publicly. Let go of those things that drive a wedge between you and the Lord, between you and his people, between you and anything fruitful that could happen. Reject the Judas spirit and run to Christ. Today's the day. A second thing that we need to see in this passage it's not just that we see that Satan fills a willing heart, but we see Peter. When self-reliance was discovered in Peter, we see anger filling an embarrassed heart. It says, when those who were around him saw what was going on, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now we know from other places that Peter is the one who is being pointed at. The reason we believe that Luke, in this scenario, does not name Peter right away. Um, it's because it was still would have been time that authorities could have come after Peter. It's not until later that it's pointed out that it was Peter who did this, or that it was Malchus who received the ear cutting, the haircut on that day. We find that out in the book of John. What's happening here is Peter wants to prove his faithfulness. Remember, Christ has told him in front of others. Others were in earshot. As Christ is proclaiming his boldness and proclaiming his faithfulness, Christ says, you're going to deny me three times before the evening's out. Peter now has an opportunity to say, no, Lord, it's not true. And he grabs one of the two swords that they had in the upper room, and he goes to Hacken. Now, how effective was this? He takes a swing, he does his very best, and he gets an earlobe. Okay? All spit in fury and no real results. He has one of these two swords, but the damage has been done. In fact, imagine the melee that could have taken place as all of his compatriots would have been decimated if those people with spears that were trained and swords that were trained and clubs that were angry all were to beset on them. That would have been a failure. Peter could have destroyed all of his people were it not for the intervention of Christ. He makes a horrible mistake. He miscalculates the need of the moment and what Christ was about to do. He's not been listening at all to the fact that Christ said, I must take this next step. He's been thinking only of himself and advertising his strength. Warren Wiersbe points out something interesting. He says, you know that we each will make the mistake of Peter if we think like Peter thought. He says that Peter fought the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon, having the wrong attitude, using the wrong energy. We also make Peter's mistake when we fight the wrong enemy. Remember, Scripture says that it's not against flesh and blood, 
That's not our wrestling. Our wrestling isn't against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There is a spiritual warfare that is going on. When you get angry and you lash out against God's people or you lash out against those who love, that, that is when you're working into the enemy's hands. Your spouse, your family, your church family, the believers that are around you, they are not the enemy when you get angry. You're not to lash out at them. You're to understand that it's not a flesh and blood battle. Wrong enemy, wrong perception. Attacking Malchus wasn't going to change the outcome of the night. It was going to get in the way of it. Fought the wrong enemy using the wrong weapon. Remember, Scripture declares to us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not earthly, they're not fleshly, but they are spiritual for the tearing down of strongholds. You cannot do anything against your mindset with a sword. People have tried, it turns out terribly, okay? You can't do that with a sword. You can't do surgery with some kind of mechanical skill to remove a spiritual problem or an emotional problem or those things. There is a battle that is going on that does not have fleshly swords, carnal weapons. He had the wrong enemy in mind. He had the wrong weapon in his hand and the wrong attitude. Scripture declares to us that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. His pride being soothed is not going to accomplish the righteousness of God. His energy trying to prove that he could protect Jesus. Remember, Jesus is God. He's like, I'm going to protect you? How awesome is that, right? He couldn't protect the God of all creation from what was about to happen. If he had thought for even a moment, he would be aware that with a snap, Jesus could remove all of this. He was going there willingly. He was to watch and to proclaim the goodness of Christ. He was not to attack with a weapon. He had the wrong attitude. He was thinking of himself. And when we trust the wrong energy, Scripture says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We are not going to win the day in this day or back then. We are not going to win the day by showing an angry force or an angry mob. It's going to be the Spirit of God working through energized, Spirit-energized believers following the Lord's plan instead of their own that will supernaturally win the day. Do you believe it? Amen. When we fight the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon, having the wrong attitude, using the wrong energy, we will always get the wrong result. There's a gal a short while ago that was in the papers, Misty Ann Weaver. She was famous because uh, she had actually burned down a building. First time offense, had never done anything wrong before in her life, but she was working for a a plastic surgeon in a six-story building, and he was asking her to participate in doing an audit. She had gotten behind on her paperwork and wanted to declare that an emergency had happened, and since there was no dog there to eat her homework, she decided to light it on fire. She lit her paper on fire at her desk in that place, hoping that it would delay the response that she needed to do. It would cover the fact that she had not done her homework, that she was not doing the right things at the right time. Six-story office building goes up in flames. Three people were ultimately killed in that disaster, all because she had tried to cover her inadequacy 
with a fiery ordeal. Have you ever tried to cover up your inadequacy in any area of life with anger? Have you ever tried to cover up a feeling of inadequacy by lashing out and proving to others that you are something stronger, you are someone to be um, thought of as great, that you are somebody of significance? Peter's lashing out in this moment trying to prove himself. He fails. Now, I think there's a key distinction that I want you to be aware of. Judas, in this moment, is living out what he believed. Judas has only ever believed in himself. Peter is not living up to what he believes. That is the key distinction. Both of them are horrible failures at the garden. All right? Both of them are not people that you would say, yeah, that is how we should approach life. One filled with Satan, the other swinging a sword blindly, running around, proving that he's inept. Not how we want to be seen on the world scene, right? One, though, is living out what was always in him. The other is not living up to that standard. In fact, the thing you have to understand is that even when Peter denies the Lord, in fact, at some point, calling down curses from heaven, saying, I've never known him, and he's calling all of the heavens to register that, that even that kind of denial is forgivable in front of God if you've put your faith in him. Is that shocking? Even that kind of denial and running away, there is no one who can be lost if they put their faith in Christ. No one. It's Christ. But Judas was living up to what was always inside of him. We have Judas, we have Peter, but we have most prominently here Christ, the Son of God. When the Son of God was discovered in the garden, grace moved a committed heart. We have a picture of a bathysphere here. You might wonder what that is. They would actually take uh, one of these little balls, these containers, uh, back when they were first doing um, deep sea exploration, they would hang it off of a line. Uh, And the deepest that a bathysphere has ever gone is somewhere around 3,000 feet, I believe it was, 3,000 feet. It might have been fathoms. That's a pretty deep descent. Uh, The early ones didn't have a little motor on the back. They had no ability to move whatsoever. They would go all the way down. They were a rigid container that had been welded, and they would be filled with pressure so that the people that were on the inside would not be crushed by their exploration. We can go down about 100 feet when we're just diving normal, and then you start to encounter the pressures in a significant way, and it can create stuff like nitrogen narcosis, where you actually won't know which direction is up. You get down deep enough, and all of a sudden you get disoriented. You just keep swimming deeper, thinking that it's fun, until it's not fun. It's just over. That's at 100 feet. They go down 3,000, and they were able to withstand that pressure. But all they could do at that moment is peer through a window and begin to look at the outside world. To their shock, as they are down all the way down, they can feel the pressures of the ocean against this bathysphere. They can hear it creaking and groaning under the pressure that is pushing in from the outside. They sat there in their little container, and they watched as fish swam ably by. They're just moving through the water as if there was nothing. The fortitude, the way that those fish were built, they can withstand all of the pressure just from the internal processes that were, that were built into them. They, on their own strength, can handle the pressure of the deep. Here's Jesus. We're watching two people crumble. One who is satanically energized, one who's given it a good attempt on his own, but not following Christ's expectations. And then there is Jesus. In the most pressure-filled night, he is moving with grace. 
He is moving as he has always moved for three and a half years, heading towards the cross, moving with consistency, speaking as he has always spoken to mankind with a kindness and an invitation in his heart. He is moving that direction. First thing he does is he takes up that faulty attempt. He picks the ear up and he puts it back on Malchus's head, the name we hear from the book of John. He heals him. Grace moved him to heal. I want you to note that there was nothing required of the recipient. The most intriguing thing about this healing is that we're not even told that it immediately resulted in any kind of faith. In fact, he heals a man who has been hacked. If you've ever had a head wound of any kind, you know how much they bleed. His ear is dangling. It's put back onto his head. It is clear to everyone around that there is a major wound that has happened. Christ heals it and heals it perfectly, and yet nobody stops and says, man, should we be doing this? He has all of the power in that moment, and they're saying, we're on orders. We're taking you to the cross. Well, if he can heal Malchus, he can evade this whole moment. He can do whatever he wants to them, but he does not. It's interesting. Some people say that both Malchus and Peter are named in the book of John, that those names come up later, because you will find names in the New Testament when they later on would join the New Testament church. We hear two blind men in one gospel account. Later, one of them is listed as Bartimaeus, and church lore is that Bartimaeus, the one who was once blind, that Christ heals on his way out of Jericho, is moving along. He hears of Christ, and he ends up becoming a part of the early church, a known person in that early church, encouraging people, saying, I was on the road. This happened to me. Could it be that Malchus also was a part later of the early church? And Peter, can you imagine what it would be like sitting back with them around the campfire one night, and Peter's like, hey, remember that time I hacked off your ear? Man, I'm so glad you're here. Both of them recipients of Christ's grace on that night. You wouldn't put it past Peter to bring it up. Here he is, the recipient of grace, but no one changes their mind. Christ heals him, but also he yields. He says, stop, no more of this, or literally permit it this far. Now, this is the shocking thing to me. The construction of this phrase is so hard to translate that many translators are saying, we're not even sure who he's speaking to here. Is it possible that he is turning to his men at this moment and he says, stop it, permit this to happen. And he is telling them as he is healing the ear of Malchus, don't you guys come in here. It's just going to turn into a mess for you anyway. But you need to permit this to happen. You have not been praying. You have not been thoughtful. You are not prepared for what is about to happen. But this is right. Let it be. It's possible that he's speaking to his men. But it's also possible that he's speaking to all of this band of wickedness that has shown up. And he looks at them and he says, stop, permit this to happen. In other words, let this be the last of it. Don't attack my men. Don't allow them to be called into the fray. You take me instead of them. Permit this to happen. Let this be the end of it. We won't uprise anymore. Allow these ones to go. And he is carried off with those wicked men. Some have even said, is it possible that at that moment as all of this riling is beginning to happen, that Christ is shouting out, stop, permit it to happen, and he's speaking to the angelic realm. 
how keyed up with the angels have been when the creator of the universe is sitting there in front of them and the hack happens and all of a sudden the tension rises and it feels like with a snap he could just say, done, and they're all dead and he walks into Jerusalem on his own. No, let this happen. Is it possible that he's just continuing the prayer from the garden as he looks at the Father and he says, Father, permit this to happen. Allow this to happen, but don't allow this to get out of control. You take charge. We're unsure. But I do think this is one of the most significant moments where we overlook the fact that Jesus proved that he is God on his way to the cross. Allow this to happen. No, no. And he is the only one at the scene who's under full control of his faculties, of the moment, of the entire scene. Jesus is in control. James Stewart uh, highlights a, a, a preacher from yesteryear. He, he, he brings out this moment, and, and I can't uh, quote it to you in all of its flavor because uh, he was Scottish and the brogue comes through in his preaching. But the essence of it is, he says, how could they miss it? Or how could the thief on the cross miss it? These people who are at this moment saying, if you are the Son of God, then prove it. He says, if? What does that if have to do with anything? He says, ask the stars. The stars who even robed themselves in a special way and greeted him at his birth and led men to the manger. Ask the oceans, the oceans who had to quiet their lip, he says, put their hand over their lip and be still when he spoke, and they quieted all the way down. Why don't you ask the sun, who in just a few hours from this moment would veil its eyes and cover itself, the world would go dark as Christ is dying on the cross for you and I. What do the lepers think, he says? What about the dead who were raised and were speaking in Jerusalem even that day? Why don't you ask them? He says all of the universe from point to point to point to people everywhere that you would look would rise up and say, yes, yes, this is the Son of God. And yet still you have people that are standing right there, including these who watched him heal an ear, who said, well, if you're the Son of God. And they had one test more. He says on the power of that if, thousands, millions, Every malefactor from that point forward has lost his life, lost his way, if. Nobody noticed the healing power of Christ. Nobody noticed his grace. They came to do the deed, and they followed through despite the signs. How much like those who live in unbelief today? Grace called him to the cross. When we unpack this scene, the question we have to ask is, how will we be discovered? Judas was a faker, Peter was a fighter, and Jesus was faithful. We could just move off of this point, but I'm going to ask you this morning if your own heart has experienced in this last few weeks as we walk through these things any conviction. Remember, I, I really do believe that one of the reasons that the church of today has been so ineffective this is not because the Word of God has no power or the Spirit of God has no power or that there is no longer energy in the preaching of the cross. The reason that we have no power is we are remaining unrepentant. So I'm just going to ask you right now as we get ready to close, if we just bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Um, 
out of characteristic, but I am going to ask you this. If you are under conviction, as you begin to hear not only of Judas, but you begin to see your own heart in Scripture, if you say, Lord, there are things in my life that I need to repent of, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, if there is any of you this morning who say, Lord, that's me. I've got to repent. Would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand. I see that. Thank you. I'm going to pray for you that have your hands up even right now. And for those who are afraid, man, I don't want my hand to be seen, but in my heart I know this is true. You don't have to show me a sign. It's between you and the Lord that that repentance matters. If there is something you need to repent of, you take that before the Lord this morning. Don't waste a moment. Yield to him. Let me pray. Father, we ask for those that raise their hand, we praise you that you still work this morning. You are at work causing our hearts to come to repentance so that we would be completely clean before you. We praise you that you still move. We thank you for these scenes where we see your grace on display, where we see you prove yourself as the only one who ever was in control and all the love in your heart drove you to the cross on our behalf. Father, we ask that you would help us to yield to that. Father, for those that have repented, we pray that they would sense your, your grace, your cleansing this very moment. For those who have yet to do that, Father, I pray that you would not allow them to go away unstirred. Allow that pressure to build that consistently until they yield to you. Father, make your will and your desire known. Cause them to be eager to respond. Help us all to live up to those things that we've committed in our heart. Father, Not like Peter swinging in the moment, but Father, yielded, trusting, living up to what we say we believe. Help us to respond to you this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.